0: This morning we are beginning a new sermon series uh, in the book of 1 Peter. Um, this is a, a sermon series that I don't think I had any idea how badly we would need uh, when we planned it and we actually got there. Um, but the, the letter of 1 Peter uh, is a letter from the Apostle Peter uh, to a group of suffering and struggling churches uh, in Asia Minor, uh, modern day Turkey. It was a church uh, that was suffering for their faith. They were laboring through a world where they acknowledged and felt very much not at home. Where around them, there was a culture that left them uh, often physically persecuted, but very often ashamed and mocked, very aware of just how out of place they were in their world. And Peter writes them this letter that roots their identity in the hope of the gospel, their identity and who they are in Christ, that gives them an anchor for their hope. We've called our series A Living Hope. From that great line in this letter where Peter writes that you have been born again into a living hope. And I don't know if there have ever been days where we need more badly a living hope uh, to taste and to live in the living hope of Jesus Christ. And so I am excited about our time together in this letter. We begin it uh, today. We begin it uh, during these live stream virtual services. Hopefully we will be together in person before we finish it. And uh, we look forward to that. But our uh, reading today is going to be from First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. And so, let's read the scriptures together. Our reading today is from First Peter chapter one, verses one through two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Great. Thanks so much, Haley. Man, it feels good to have a two-verse scripture reading after uh, some of those chapter-long readings from, uh, from the book of Genesis. Terrence Malick is a filmmaker, uh, Oscar-winning filmmaker, and his latest movie uh, is called A Hidden Life. And A Hidden Life tells the true story of a man uh, named Franz, and I'm going to butcher this, daughter, Obviously a Germanic name. Uh, Franz was an Austrian Catholic during uh, World War II. He lived in a small village uh, in northern Austria where he worked as a farmer. He was a husband. He was a father. Uh, He lived, as Malik uh, titles his movie, a hidden life, a small life. He spoke up uh, when the Nazi army annexed Austria at the outset of Hitler's Third Reich. They rolled into Austria and claimed it as their own. He spoke out against that. When he was conscripted into the Nazi army, as many military age men were, he objected and resisted. Uh, He was able to be granted a deferment uh, due to the petition of his mayor and was able to go back home to uh, to resume his work as a farmer. But then a couple of years later, he was called back up uh, into active duty in Hitler's army. During the intervening time when he was at home, he sought the counsel of his priests. He sought the counsel of his bishops to try to figure out what to do when he was possibly being enlisted into what he believed to be an evil and unjust cause. He was dismayed to find the level to which his bishops uh, and his priests had come to terms with Nazi government, uh, the degree to which they had agreed to go along to get along in order uh, to spare their own lives and the lives of their congregants. And so called up into military service in 1943, he refused to take up arms. For Nazi Germany. He offered uh, to serve as a paramedic uh, in the German army. Uh, That uh, offer was refused. And so in 1943, he was arrested uh, and then eventually killed for resisting the call to serve in Hitler's Nazi army. It took until 2007, uh, over 60 years later, Uh, but he was eventually uh, declared a saint and a martyr by his Roman Catholic Church. He was a man who lived during tumultuous times, uh, during evil days. He lived a small life in a small town with a small family. And yet, uh, by his resistance, by his uh, naming himself and grounding his identity in something deeper than the national politics of his day, he proved himself uh, to be a hero to be the bearer of a hidden but beautiful life. You see, Franz daughter knew himself to be, in the words of Peter in our reading, knew himself to be an elect exile. That's the word that Peter uses to describe the Christian church. Elect, chosen, beloved by God. And an exile, not fully at home, uh, in our day and in our cultures, not firmly at home in the cultural forces in which we live. We all like to think uh, that we would be a Franz Yarish daughter, don't we? Have you ever thought about what it would be like if you lived in 1930s and 40s Germany? Would you be one of those uh, who went along with the flow of your culture? Would you be one of those Christians? Uh, who went along and even baptized Nazi ideology uh, in the dressings of Christianity out of fear, or out of peer pressure, or out of going along? Or would you, like uh, daughter, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like Karl Barth in the Confessing Church, like these heroes that we read about, would you have the courage to speak out, uh, to resist, to not go along with the culture around you? We all like to think that we would. We like to think that had we lived uh, during the days of slavery, we would have found our voices with the voices of men like William Wilberforce speaking out against the predominant social flow of our day. We like to think that if we had lived uh, during the civil rights movement, that we would have been a voice on the right side. And yet we know so often uh, that the Christian church has been shaped more by its culture than it has shaped its culture. That living in our society, we have found our society living in us in a way that molds us into its image. How do we live in our time and in our culture without our culture living in us? Those are the issues that are at the core of 1 Peter. How do we live in our day in 20th century or 21st century America? and being molded into the image of Jesus, being who He says we are and who He's made us to be, instead of being shaped into the image of our age. How can we be faithful to Christ in a world that ignores His kingship? In our own age, age of division and hatred and racism, in an age of rampant sexual confusion and consumerism and fear and greed, How can we be made in a different image? How can we live not in the way of 21st century America, but in the way of Jesus in 21st century America? Well, that's what we are going to be looking at in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter written to address these very questions. It's written to a group of suffering Christians in Asia Minor, as we've said, roughly modern Turkey, a minority facing shame and persecution and loss, a community trying to live out the way of Jesus in their world, in a world where it often costs them everything. And now friends, it's not easy uh, to live in the way of Jesus in a culture that doesn't recognize it or applaud it or appreciate it. It wasn't easy in Peter's day, and it's not easy in our day. It's never been easy to live in this way. We have a natural desire to belong and to fit in, Right, We have a natural desire to be well-respected and well-liked. We have a natural desire to feel a sense of belonging in our culture. We're constantly pressed as Christians and always have been into responding to this pressure in a couple of different ways. Right, Sometimes we're pressured just to go along with the flow of our culture, making its ideas and its agendas and its causes into our own. And so the Christian church has accommodated to the pressures of surrounding culture to the point that it's indistinguishable from those forces. And other times, feeling this immense pressure, the church has chosen to wall itself off, uh, chosen to stand out and against and above its culture, no longer living in uh, contact, in meaningful dialogue and relationship with the causes and concerns and issues of its day. And so Peter, the apostle, gives us a deep and lasting wisdom for how to forge a gospel-centered, rooted identity that enables us to be grounded and stable in the midst of the forces of our culture. And it gives us a form and a force of witness to our neighbors and our friends in our culture. Peter packs an amazing amount of this content into these first two verses. Right, this, uh, these first two verses are basically the, the material you would put in an email. Uh, you know, when you sit down to write an email, you put who's it to, who's it from, and what's the subject. Uh, that's essentially what Peter's doing here. He says who is from, Peter the apostle, who it's to, what who he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion, which we're going to spend considerable time unpacking. He addresses it. Uh, to the churches, and then he names them by city. This was likely a letter that would have circulated between all of those different churches. And then he gives it the subject, and he packs a lot of content in here. And Peter's message to his church, and indeed his message to us here, is really quite simple. It It can be thought of as this. Look, you don't belong here. Right, That feeling that you have of not quite fitting in the wider culture in which you live, you're right, you don't belong here. But you belong to God. You belong to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you don't belong here, you belong to God, and because you belong to God, you belong everywhere. You belong anywhere. You belong spread out and spread throughout all of the nations and cultures of the earth. You don't belong here, but you belong to God so you belong everywhere. First off, you don't belong here. The word that Peter uses to describe the church, the elect exiles, uh, we are going to spend some time on this word exile. We'll get to election. I know some of you might have questions around that. We'll get there. Uh, But first, let's talk about this word exile. The word that Peter uses here in Greek uh, is a technical term. It's a term uh, that has a meaning that was codified in the legal uh, work, uh, workings of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's the word that we might think of and translate, and we often do, as resident aliens, that he calls the church in Asia Minor, living in the Roman Empire, resident aliens. Now, a resident alien uh, is, uh, it's not a tourist, right? It's not somebody who's just passing through on the way to somewhere else. And it's not a citizen. They don't have the full rights and responsibilities of citizens. We might think uh, of them in the American parlance as the holder of a green card, right? They are here in the culture. They're here in the nation for a purpose. They've come from somewhere else, but they're not a tourist. They're not just passing on. When you're a resident alien in a place, in a community, you have a job or you go to school. You have a share in the well-being of the place that you are. You're going about your job and trying to make your living and raise your family. You have neighbors that you are in relationship with, right? You're not living in a hotel uh, about to move on to the next hotel. You have neighbors in your apartment building or you have neighbors in your neighborhood. You have coworkers, right? You are living in a nation seeking to build your own livelihood and trying to seek the well-being of the community in which you've been placed. You're building relationships. You're known. And yet, even as you live in the cultures of one place, you are also trying to keep alive uh, the culture of another place. Right? You might dress differently, or speak differently, or eat different kinds of foods than your neighbors. You're living in that somewhat countercultural way of life in a way of keeping it alive, of keeping it real to you. Your neighbors might look on you with some curiosity because you're different. Your neighbors might even look on you as a threat uh, because you live according to a different set of cultural norms and expectations than they do. And to Peter, this became the perfect metaphor to seize on to talk about the church's relationship to the wider society. That you live there. It's your home now. But you live there as resident aliens. You live there as exiles. You live there with an acknowledgement that it can never be your permanent home. That you were made for something else. That in Christ you've been claimed by another reality. And that by by virtue of your faith you are venturing towards a better city, as the author of Hebrews puts it. That you are seeking for that day as we just prayed, when God's kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's something in you that acknowledges that you don't quite belong here, that something doesn't quite fit right. We should expect this to be the case. Very often, uh, the journey into the Christian faith begins with the awareness that we were made for something more, that something in this life doesn't quite satisfy or live up to the promises that it offers, that unless there's something above and beyond and deeper and more to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, we can't rest. And so we seek and we search. And if you've come to faith in Jesus, then you believe that you have found that more, that you have found the one who reached into this world to give you a hope and a life that's beyond this world. And so if that's where the Christian life starts, we should expect that that's how it continues that it continues with this sort of ill-at-easeness in this world. You might think of it, uh, if you've ever traveled widely, eventually you get tired of sleeping in hotel beds. right? Even when they fit, they're not quite right. They're either too short or too long, they're too hard, they're too soft. Nothing in the room is quite where you put it. And so when you get home finally, there's this feeling that, ah, oh, yeah, My bed is just the right hardness or softness. Things fit right around me. And so Peter says, living in this culture, Christians exist as resident aliens, that we are defined by a reality and a citizenship and a belonging that transcends our national and cultural citizenships. A couple of examples of this. Yugoslavian-born theologian Miroslav Volf puts it this way. Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, Croatians or Russians or Tutsis and then Christians. Christians take a distance from the idols of their own cultures because they give ultimate allegiance to the God of all cultures. So that when they have responded to the call of the gospel, they have stepped, as it were, with one foot outside their own culture, while the other remaining firmly planted in it. This very much is in keeping with what Peter says here that the identity of the Christian is deeper than any other cultural marker. That we are a Christian before we are American or Canadian or Floridian or Georgian. That we are uh, American before we are Republican or Democrat. That we are American, I mean, I'm sorry, I should rephrase that. That we are Christian uh, before we are uh, defined by our political allegiance. That we are Christian before we are defined by our race or our ethnicity or our culture. That what binds us together in Christ across cultures is infinitely deeper than what binds us with other people within our cultures. That we are named by the name of Jesus. And that's what makes us who we are at the deepest level. It's always been this way for the Christian church. Uh, In a letter written in 150 A.D., So this is one of the earliest Christian writings that we have after the closure of the New Testament. A letter uh, called the Letter to Diognetius. An anonymous author writes this about the Christians living in uh, the Roman Empire. He says, with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the custom of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Listen to this. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. That's what we're saying again. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country like others they marry and have children but they do not expose them what there's he, he's saying here he's saying that they have families they they have children but unlike our neighbors unlike the roman way when they have children they don't expose them to the elements this was the the roman equivalent of abortion right they don't if they have a child they don't want if they have a daughter and they don't want a daughter they don't leave her out on the trash heap in fact we know that they actually went and gathered in the children abandoned by their neighbors to raise as their own So they have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. Shocking, isn't it, that that could be a marker of a a church, of a community, that someone would practice enough hospitality to say, hey, come in and have a meal. But then this isn't going to turn into a swingers party. Uh, And yet they were living as a countercultural community in their community, marked by a different kind of ethic, marked uh, by an ethic that saw the value of every man, woman, and child, an ethic that saw the the God-givenness and goodness of sexuality within the context of marriage. They lived as a counterculture for the common good. And so we should expect that our experience will be the same. That we will live in this world as a kind of resident alien, living a kind of countercultural life for the common good of our neighbors. The great biblical example uh, of a resident alien or an exile uh, is the example of Daniel living in Babylonian exile. If you want kind of a field manual for living as a resident alien, look at the life of Daniel and his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were a people who lived in exile from Israel in the land of Babylon. And who excelled, who were gifted, and who, who learned all of the knowledge that was there to be had in Babylon. Who rose to positions of prominence in Babylon, giving their gifts for the good of their neighbors, for the good of this nation that had carried them into a type of imprisonment. And yet they were not conformed by it. They were marked by this countercultural way, a way marked by prayer. Uh, they resisted the idolatry of their day. They lived. Is resident resident aliens, and so must we. To live as a resident alien means that we do hope that we have some influence on our neighbors. It means, as Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Right? What's more, in our in our culture today, and I, I do mean today, waking up today, what is more countercultural than waking up today with some kind of hope? Right? Nihilism abounds around us. Many of us are tempted to hang our heads in despair. And yet Peter tells us that we are born again to a living hope. How beautiful would it be for our neighbors to say, hey, in light of all of the bad news around us, in in light of all of the sadness and anger that we all share, how are you finding hope? How are you finding a hope beyond the sorrow? So we do expect to have some influence and we hope and pray to have some influence on our neighbors. But we don't live with the foolish belief that we'll ever bend the culture around us to fit us. That we'll ever be able to, to look out among us and assume that we are going to get our way in the issues of our day. We live as a counterculture for the common good. We are engaged in forming people, in living our lives in a way that goes against, in many ways, the culture of our day. The way we put this as a church is that we exist to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. Our city could use some truth, some, go- some goodness, and some beauty, couldn't it? And we live to display that where He's placed us. Today, as we've mentioned, we celebrate Pentecost. Pentecost is that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out to forge one church out of all of the nations and cultures of the world. We, friends, have a unity that was forged in the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's good news, friends, that the unity of the church is the gift of the Holy Spirit, that it's a part of the gospel and that it cannot be taken from us. Right As I uh, woke up this morning, I confessed to, to feeling a substantial amount of anxiety thinking about, well, how, are we, how on earth am I going to address all of our members in some way that speaks to everybody and that, that acknowledges all of the fears and all of the anxieties and all of the different perspectives that people might be coming together with? How do I as a pastor hold this church together in spite of the divisions going on? And the good news of Pentecost, friends, and believe me, this is good news, is that it is not up to the eloquence or gifts of a pastor. It's not up to the shepherding prowess of elders. It's not up to you or to me to hold the church together. Jesus, by His Spirit, holds the church together. He is the one who's poured out His power on us so that the divisions that mark our world do not need to mark us. At times like this, it's been said uh, that we see that there are really two Americas. Right, and I'm not a politician, I am not a social scientist. Uh, It may well be true uh, that in some ways of looking at it, there have always been two or more Americas, people living in our own country with very different experiences of America. And while it may be true that there are different experiences of America, it may be true that you could say there are two Americas. And it may feel in these moments like those Americas are coming across or coming apart. Uh, Friends, there cannot be two churches. There cannot be two churches. There is one church bought by the blood of Jesus, sealed by His Spirit, and in our unity, in our togetherness across the lines that, that divide us as an uncommon fellowship, that we exist as a witness and as a sign of the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. Well, how do we resource this? How do we find uh, the internal resources to model that kind of love and unity and beauty in our world? To swim against the streams of our culture. How do we do it? Well, that's that other word. You are the elect exiles. And he goes on to flesh that out. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. What better after an appeal to unity in the church than to talk about the topic of election? (laughs) Um, And uh, and we are not going to do a full theological uh, treatise here on election. But election is a big word. The elect exiles, that is combining two Old Testament words. Exile, describing Israel's experience, uh, having lost the promised land, being sent out into the diaspora, the dispersion as it's translated here. But Israel also clung to a deeper reality, that even though they were exiles, they were elect. This is to say that they were God's beloved and chosen people. That of all of the peoples of the earth, God chose Israel. He chose them uh, not because they were an awesome nation, not because they were more powerful or more strong, not because uh, they were more righteous or more morally upright or more spiritual. He chose them because he loved them. He chose them simply out of his own heart and his own decision. He chose them. One theologian put it this way. He said that God chose Israel. Uh, Israel was the chosen people, not the choice people. Right To be choice means that you were the first draft pick. You were the best of the lot. That wasn't Israel. God could have chosen Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. But he chose weak Israel in order to live in covenant with them as their beloved and to make them his beloved. And Peter is now telling the Christians in Asia Minor that they are God's chosen. That of all the peoples of the earth, of all their neighbors, God has set His love on them in Jesus Christ in a special and transformative way. And he couches this, or he describes this, in Trinitarian terms. So it's not just you belong to God in some general sense. You belong to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. in the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with His blood. We'll start where Peter ends, by the sprinkling of His blood. This again is Old Testament language. Uh, This is the language of the atonement ritual, where the sacrifice would be made in the temple and the altar sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. That in the sacrifice of Jesus, God has made atonement between humanity and God and His holiness. Now, atonement is a beautiful word. Uh, it's an English word, um, and it captures so succinctly what it says and what it means. But if you look at atonement, it means at-one-ment. It is the way that two become one. The way that something that was meant to live in unity but has become fractured comes back together and made at-one again. And we know that all of our relationships, if you think about it, have these atonement rituals. Right When you wrong someone, think about it in the context of a marriage, if you say words that are hurtful and that wrong someone, what is meant to be one becomes two and you live at odds for a while. Until something happens that brings you back together. An apology. Flowers are purchased. Uh, Change is demonstrated. Trust is rebuilt. That even in the smallest infractions in human relationships, we find ways to make atonement, to come back together as one. And if the gap isn't uh, the small gap of careless words spoken in a marriage, but rather the infinite gap of humanity's rebellion against a holy God, then the atonement ritual at the heart of bringing it back together must be of infinite worth. And that's what Peter is saying here, is that by the sprinkling of the blood of the Son of God, He has offered a way for the two to become one. For you to live not in estrangement and isolation, but to come back and to live in unity with God the Father. And he says this exists in the foreknowledge of God. That this exists through God's plan from eternity past. God, the word here for uh, according to, doesn't mean that God looks ahead to see whether you're a good person or not before he decides, oh yeah, I'll pick him or her. It doesn't mean that God even looks ahead to figure out if you're going to believe or not before He decides to set His love. But it means on the basis of God's knowledge. And the knowledge that it speaks of isn't just intellectual knowledge. right? It's not just God knew about you. right? God didn't look out and see and know about you in some objective sense. No, knowledge in the Bible is personal and intimate and relational. In Genesis chapter 4, it tells us uh, that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived a son. Right? We won't go into details on how that works out, but uh, we know there that knowledge... He's not saying that Adam all of a sudden knew about Eve. He had known her. But no, this is saying he knew her in a bond of intimate love. And so when the scriptures say that God foreknew us, it means that God foreloved us that He loved us from eternity past, He decided to be a God for us, to send His Son for us, to send His Spirit into us. God foreloved us. And friends, this is exceedingly good news. This means that God's love for you is based entirely in His heart, not in your faithfulness. It's based entirely in His intent to love you. Not in your goodness, not in your ability, not in your power, not in your righteousness. The way that J.I. Packer, great English uh, thinker, put this, is he says, the good news is you cannot do anything to lose God's love because you never did anything to earn it to start with. You were foreloved before you did a thing and sanctified by His Spirit. This isn't talking about sanctification in the way that we often think of it, Uh, The biblical uh, thinking of sanctification that we are growing by the Spirit's power into greater and greater holiness. Uh, This is the, the, the way of talking about sanctification, of being set apart and made holy. And God, by His Spirit, in time, invaded our hearts, invaded our lives by His Spirit, to make what has always been true of us in His heart, true in our own lives, in our own experience, that we belong to Him. And so, friends, you belong to God. In a world that will often tell you and make you wonder whether you really belong, you belong to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because you belong to God, you belong everywhere. That's the other word here, that you are a part of the dispersion. This is another Old Testament word that's used to describe Israel when they lost the land, being dispersed and lost in the nations of the world. And for them, originally, it was a sign of judgment, that they were dispersed because of their sin, because they had broken covenant. But in Christ, our dispersion into the the nations of the world is a part of the plan. right? Just before Pentecost, Jesus says, My Spirit will come on you in power to His disciples. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We were made to go. We were made to be dispersed. And so we are never fully at home in any of the cultures of the world. You feel it in your bones right now that you don't belong right here in this moment. right? That you do not belong in a culture and in a nation that denies justice and where cities are lit on fire and rage. You feel that ill-fitting lack of belonging. But friends, you belong here. You've been placed here. We belong here. This is our dispersion. This is where God has placed us and rooted us so that we in our place in time might display His truth, beauty, and goodness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that though we know and feel in our bones uh, the feeling of not belonging, that because of Your great love we belong to You. You have set Your love on us. You've embraced us with an unbreakable bond. You have knit together out of the many one family, And so, Lord, we belong to you. And because of that, we do belong here. We belong in our day and age, in our place, our city. With all of its ups and downs and its hopes and its fears and its sadnesses, we belong here. You've sent us here and called us here. Lord Jesus, we believe uh, that the calling of our church has never been more needed than it is today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would preserve the bonds of our unity and peace for the glory of your name and the good of our community.